So we are all um, that's the way I see it. We are all um, coming out uh, of a vision quest. Um, I feel like I'm coming out of a vision quest. You guys took me with you uh, through the interviews and through the talks and uh, and the practice. Uh, here in the hall and um, the field, you know, we know we're entering into something when we enter into it, you know, and it's, uh, it's a, a journey uh, that I was aware of being on uh, with you guys. So I feel very fragile. I feel maybe as uh, some of you do, uh, yeah, a little shaky and uh, very open, raw. So I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know. We never know really, but sometimes it's more apparent that we don't know <laughs> than other times. <laughs> so um, often with this quality, uh, sati, uh, this mindfulness or loving awareness. Uh, in the text, you find this um, quality of mind uh, often related to another one that always comes with it or very often comes with it, uh, sampajanya, which is sometimes translated as a clear comprehension. And there's many ways to talk about this. And I, I just want to name two ways to think about this uh, clear comprehension. Or for me, I, the way I think of, of, of it naturally, I'm, I want to say maybe also that I'm a practitioner. I'm somebody who loves to practice this and learn how to own it and what it means for me. So I might be talking more in these terms than in the classic terms. Um, but the way I see this quality of discernment that has to come with, uh, the, the, with the, the awareness... Uh, I'm thinking of Utegenia's title of his book, Awareness is Not Enough. It has to come with some kind of intellig- intelligence, we could say. And so, two ways that um, uh, this discernment can show up is um, um, by the capacity that we develop more and more, this intui- intuitive uh, intelli- intelligence that we develop of uh, being able to recognize what is wholesome in the mind and what is unwholesome. So this discernment of what is actually entangling in the way that I'm meeting this experience is being met. What is entangling and what is, what is a way that could be liberating eventually. And so we start to have a feel for this. Yeah. And, uh, and to eventually abandon more and more what is unwholesome and cultivate what is awesome. So that's maybe one way that this clear knowing shows up with uh, the mindfulness or the loving awareness. Another way is um, that I've seen develop uh, uh, inside this being over the years is a recognition of the opportunities for practice. And sometimes, I think I read somewhere something about the domain of meditation. This domain uh, becoming larger and larger. So when you start, like meditation is sitting on a cushion, not moving. Suddenly somebody says, yeah, but we're also going to walk back and forth. The domain of meditation just included some movement. And you know, at some, some point somebody says, but there's not just the breath, there's also the other sensations and the difficult sensations. And oh, the mind states. And oh, did you check out the feeling tone that comes with experience? The domain gets larger and larger. And the perceptions, the fact that there's always perception happening and intention and consciousness and you would think, okay, that's pretty much it, you know. But now we're stretching it a little bit more, and we're saying, 
could the domain of uh, meditation be also life and speech, you know? Could we uh, um, develop this capacity to recognize opportunity for practice uh, outside of retreat and in daily things? We already talked about this in this retreat, you know. I know that with some of the, uh, the practitioners, retreatants in private interview, I would say, you know, how is it in the bedroom? How is it in the, in the, in the dining room? Because I know I've been there, you know, how I used to use the bedroom as a hiding place, you know, like I would walk really slowly on these retreats with some of the Burmese uh, masters where they, every day they would say, slow down, slow down, as if you were sick, as if you were uh, an elderly, slow down, and I would slow down. And sometimes I would just like open the door of my room and close the door of my room. (laughs) And just check out for a while, you know, like get busy, uh, you know. And uh, I actually remember, (laughs) just to continue with the toilet uh, symbolism, I remember one yogi on a retreat doing this, like like coming in the bathroom, closing the door. And then I could hear like really fast movement in the the door and I was just like, I, I, I was just, close to when, when that yogi came out and he came out, you know, like really like this and then <laughs> like, oh yeah, I'm in a slow mode. <laughs> anyway, looking good. <laughs> but um, so this domain of uh, meditation, how can any situation, that's something that I got even more interested in as I started to teach weekly class on Wednesday night in Montreal. Many people who come uh, I've never sat retreats, or will uh, maybe never will sa- sit retreat. They're very interested by this practice, so I had to really, uh, you know, l- learn to do it myself. You know, to incorporate this practice in life, and uh, and so my domain of meditation, my comprehension, my uh, discernment that this can be practiced is growing wider and wider, and that's for my benefit and for the benefit of others also. Um, So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about speech and some of the classic teachings around this. And see, I have a big agenda. uh, So I'll I'll just name to you the first part, so I don't commit to anything else than that. And... um, um, the way I'll talk about it maybe is uh, you could think of um, before growing uh, uh, anything, you have to clear the land, you know, remove the big rocks and the weeds and, uh, you know, clear this, the space. So in this way, I'll talk about the, maybe the four ways that uh, speech can be used uh, in an un- unwholesome way. It's good for us to remember this and consider this, I think. It's, it's good for me to do this. Always very humbling, this talk. Maybe that's one reason why I feel fragile. It's because it's a, it's a kind of a mirror when I, um, when I prepare this talk. And so one of the ways that we can uh, use uh, speech that can be uh, harmful uh, to us and to others is by lying. Hmm? Um, and uh, there's a story that I read that really touched me uh, very much. Uh, this is the Buddha with Rahula. Rahula being a novice, uh, his, his son, very young. I don't know what <coughs> age, but I like to think that he was very, very young. And the Buddha, uh, probably something happened, you know, because when the Buddha speak, usually there's something. It's because of something, you know. And so he has a ball, of, uh, of, uh, with a little water like this. I don't know if you can see, there's a little water in there. And he says, hey, Raula, can you see this uh, ball? Can you see the water in there? Very little water in there. So that's the amount of water, amount of um, spiritual achievement that the person who lies have. This somebody who's not afraid of lying, don't have much more than this. Did you see how easily I could get rid of that water? 
any spiritual achievement, somebody who uh, hides the truth that we're apparently interested in, somebody who uh, uh, lies the truth like this, that's how easily they get rid of their, uh, their the fr- spiritual achievement, or you could think of the, any freedom they have gained. Yeah. He said, look now, somebody who continues to uh, hide uh, the truth from themselves or other, that's, that's, that's the level of freedom they have. You could think that's enough, you know, but he went one, uh, one st- a fourth step, as I see it, he went like this. And he says, do you see this? Is it possible to put water in there? No, not possible. So I'll leave it to that, you know. And when I read that, it uh, really drove the point home that uh, as um, maybe spiritual seekers or freedom seekers and finders, you know, we are very much interested in truth. And it's, it, be, it can be very interesting to see how we're interested in truth, but that little area here, prefer to present it in a different way, <laughs> prefer to promote something else that is not exactly who I am or what really happened, you know? And so there's these little areas maybe where we, uh, we don't want to see. We don't want to tell the truth to ourselves or to somebody else, you know? And what would it be like to at least be aware of that and have this honesty and see this? Um, so definitely something I'm working on. Um, So when we uh, hide something, usually it doesn't come alone. You have to put another little piece there to protect that first illusion. You know? And then another one, another one, another one, another one, another one, another one. And then you find yourself, or I find myself, in a little bit of a cage right? that is mind-made. It's very similar to the kind of cage we live in with our delusion about reality with our perception of solidity, of it's mine, it's not mine, really believed in, and we... Like, why do I feel separate? I feel separate. Why is that? Because there's a little cage of delusion or illusion there. So, as much as we cannot consciously add to that structure, it could be good for us in terms of freedom. Another way that we can use uh, speech that can uh, be not for our benefit, not onward leading for us and for others, is uh, divisive speech. Yeah. And uh, so the speech that uh, is aimed uh, towards uh, breaking down relations or putting down somebody. And sometimes there's a little greedy twist to it where we'll... Uh, put somebody down in a very kind of uh, factual and caring way and just to bring us a little up so we don't actually have to do the bringing up you know the putting down is just enough and can we become aware of this as it's happening with loving awareness oh et voila you know I, here's a beautiful <laughs> clear example of this that I is happening or has just happened or, you know, wherever you catch it is good, I believe. You know, wherever uh, mindfulness can come in, even kind of retroactively or I don't know if it's the way to exact word there, but to actually see this and then avoid the trap of self-hatred or blaming or blaming others just to see it for what it is. Oh, not helpful not helpful, don't want to do this, yeah. There's a little uh, story of uh, the time of the Buddha. It was the king uh, Ajatasattu, yes, Ajatasattu, who was uh, hanging out with Devadatta, who was the cousin 
enemy of the Buddha. He was a, had a more delusion than uh, than the rest of the crowd around the Buddha, and uh, but was was uh, staying very much active in the sangha, very present. But at some point, um, the king asked the Buddha if he could um, defeat another uh, kingdom or clan, uh, the Lachiva. You named them yesterday. Lichavi. I know I always turn it around. The Lichavi. And the Buddha said, as long as they live in harmony and, uh, uh, and care for each other, you will, you will not be able to, uh, to, to uh, defeat them. You know, to, uh. And so the king had a very interesting uh, idea. Uh, if, uh, he, he asked one of his ministers, he said, I want you to go to the next uh, meeting of clans, you know, and at some point, I would like you to, um, when it gets really quiet and people are reflective and something, just turn to one of the lichavi and uh, say in their ear, um, uh, there is rice in paddy seed. Which we all know there is rice in paddy seed. But he said, this is all I want you to say. At some point, there was subject, very, very serious subject they were talking about. And uh, they were reflective on what to do with uh, the situation for there to be harmony in all the different clans. And so the minister just went like this. There is uh, rice in a paddy seed. And the other ones who were there looked at that and said, there's something going on, you know, just shared, said something. And so one of the Lichavis asked the other after the meeting, he said, "What, uh, what did the... That minister tell you? He said, "Oh, he told me there was uh, rice in the paddy seeds." <laughs> and the other one said, mm, "I don't think that's what he said." And he went to see another one of the lichavi, and he said, you, "Did you see when they were talking?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah." What they were, were they saying? He said, "Apparently, uh, he said that they were saying <laughs> that there's seeds, that there was rice in the paddy seeds." And they're like, "No, they're hiding something." He's hiding something. So one of our guys is a spy. He's hiding something. And anyway, so all this started like this. And it created so much disharmony in this clan that fight and uh, conflict erupted. And the king was able to make his way into that uh, and win their territory and win over there. So that's the, that's the story. And so just how much of a little thing that we can say at, with the intention to disrupt can actually cause disruption. Uh, did it really happen like this? I, I don't know. But I know that this story is... Uh, I like the fact that it's such a small little thing that is said and it creates a lot of havoc and disharmony. And so that's the, maybe a few words on the power of, uh, of uh, divisive uh, speech. Harsh uh, speech is known to be um, impulsive and... Uh, and followed by regret, yeah. And uh, maybe a little, another little story. It's like story time tonight. A little, an elephant story for you, for you. And so um, um, there was one monk uh, uh, that was um, one of the disciples of the Buddha, and this monk really um, loved. He was a foodie really liked food. He liked like good papadam and good curries and chutneys and you know, all the good stuff. And he was really always looking for a good, uh, a good deal, you know, like uh, where's going to be, you know, if somebody, uh, some uh, uh, prosperous uh, devotee of the Buddha was offering a meal, you know, he was always on to join that alm ra- ra- round, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, and the group of, um, uh, that were hanging out with Devadatta, the monk and cousin of the Buddha, who was not a very skillful monk, um, they, were, um, they were getting a lot of these good deals, you know, a lot of the good meals. And so this monk was hanging out with them a lot. And with them, there was a lot of harsh language. And the Buddha, one time, uh, uh, seeing this, said to this monk, you, can you recall your past lives? And the monk said, no, I can't. Would you like to know a little bit about some of your past lives? You know? 
And the monk was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love to know about some of my past lives. Said, well, in one of your past lives, you were, uh, you were an elephant. You were a very devoted, uh, great uh, white elephant be belonging to a king. And you were, uh, you were a very faithful and very calm and balanced and loving elephant. And the whole of the city where you lived loved you for, uh, for your uh, heart and uh, mind qualities. And he said, what happened is that uh, at some point there were some burglars and thieves that started... Uh, Plotting uh, uh, different, um, mm, how would you say that? Different, the coups en français, the different um, plans. They were making plans anyway to, to do a thing. And they started uh, making these plans just behind your um, stable. And so they would drink and get drunk and they would, you know, speak really harsh language and plan all these awful things. And over time, it had an impact on your mind and you, you started to get uh, agitated and irritated and, and restless and suddenly all your good nature was gone and you were really a problem to be around. You know, you would not be able to do parades because you would go in all directions and you were, you know, you were, you were becoming very nasty and at some point the king was wondering what's hap happened with my great elephant? What happened with, uh, with uh, this beautiful being? And the Buddha said, I happen to be one of the advisors of that king. And he said, could you find out what happened? And so I, as the advisor of the king in that time, I actually went one night to see what was happening uh, in your stable. And I could hear the robbers and, uh, and thieves, uh, um, you know, having harsh conversation and drinking. And I figured out, this is what's happening. You're hanging out with the wrong crowd, you know? <laughs> And so he told, he said, I told the king uh, what was happening. And so we got ri rid of these guys. And I said to the king, it would be a good thing. It would be really a wise thing to bring uh, every evening, to bring a lot of wise people to have conversation around your dear elephant. You know? And so we did that. I used to spend e many nights, many evenings, uh, being just hanging out around you and having conversation uh, with other uh, other of the people from, um, you know, other of the wise beings of the city. Uh, and then you regained your good nature, you know. And so please be careful with uh, who you hang out with, you know, because uh, the harshness of their language is going to rub of, on you. So um, this is just a little story about harsh language and how we actually, uh, we can see uh, the thing I said the other night about how does one gain a wise view and how this happens through the voice of another. Huh? And so the power of the voice of another when the voice is uh, deluded or, uh, you know. So uh, in, in the teaching, it, that comes back a lot, you know. In the teachings around the seven factors of awakening, it says, oh, if you want to develop calm, hang out with calm people. If you want to develop joy, hang out with uh, joyful people. If you want to develop uh, loving awareness. And so in, this, in these last few months, we can see how blessed we were to be in the company of uh, like-minded people and good friends. And now we were pillars for each other uh, in the way that we uh, brought forth the best of our practice uh, in here. Yeah. And so the last of the classic uh, speech that can be uh, damaging for oneself is, uh, is um, uh, idle speech, empty speech, that often can uh, have a spiral down because, you know, it's kind of loose, very loose, and then suddenly we start feeding on something that is not so wholesome. And then, whoops, it starts to go in the direction of, uh, um, you know, either divisive speech or... Anyway, to be aware of this. And maybe one little uh, thing that I would like to say about this is maybe highlight the beauty of idle speech also. Because there's a kind of speech that we have with people sometimes where there's not much being said uh, of great depth, you know, weather, conversation. But there's a great depth of caring that is being expressed. And so maybe that points to the, um, 
factor uh, of intention. And now, in our mindfulness uh, practice around speech, intention can be a, um, something we can tune in, you know, say like, what's happening here? You know, oh, there's an expression of care, you know, it, that is there. And oops, it's just turning, you know, it just got deluded or not, you know, to, uh, to bring attention to this. And j- maybe just for the fun of it, there could be a little wisdom in there. But um, uh, I could read to you some of the kinds of speech to be avoided by contemplatives. Are you interested? Okay, some contemplatives are addicted to talking about lowly topics such as these. Talking about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms and battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands, scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities, countryside, uh, the appealing sex, I would, <laughs> I'm adapting here a little bit, <laughs> and heroes, uh, the gossips of the street, the gossips of the well, tales of the dead, Tales of philosophy, discussion of past and future, creation of the world and the sea, and talk about things uh, uh, about whether things exist or not. Uh, so, why is being abstained from talking about lowly topics as these? This is part of virtue. So that's like maybe for the monastics. But it's interesting to see like how wide it is. Huh? <laughs> We're like, whoa, man. So. Um, this is the other, uh, another kind of speech that is to be avoided. So, some contemplative are addicted to debates such as these. This is from the text. You understand this doctrine and discipline? I'm the one who understands this doctrine and discipline. How could you understand this discipline and this doctrine? You're practicing wrongly. I'm practicing rightly. I'm being consistent. You're not. What should be said first, you said last. What should be said last, you said first. What took you uh, so long to think out has been refuted. Your do- doctrine has been overthrown. You are talking rubbish. You're defeated. Go and try to salvage your dr- doctrine. Et- extricate yourself if you can. So <laughs> it says that this is not the kind of uh, speech that is uh, helpful on the path. <laughs> uh. And why should uh, you not do this? Because such talks is not related to the goal, is not fundamental to the holy life or the life leading to freedom, does not conduce to disenchantment, dispassion, getting out of the trance, you know, uh, cessation, tranquility, higher knowledge, enlightenment, or nibbana. When you have discussions, monks, nuns, uh, bhikkhus, practitioners, you should discuss suffering, (laughs) the arising of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path that leads to its cessation. Why is that? Because such talk is related to the goal. It's conducive to disenchantment, to Nibbana. This is the task that you must accomplish. So you do with this uh, how you see fit, but um, I think it's interesting to consider anyway a little bit with all the traps that can come with that, you know, but uh, it's good to know what's in the teaching. I like to be aware of that. Maybe one little piece here about uh, conventional speech you might be interested in. So somebody is asking uh, the Buddha here, if a person is awake, uh, would they say, I speak? And would they say, they speak to me? And the Buddha says, if a person is awake, they might still say, I speak. (laughs) And they might uh, say, they speak to me. But skillful, knowing the world parlance, they use such terms as mere expressions. 
And so for me, I've, uh, I think it's, uh, it's interesting to, to see this, like the balance uh, of knowing uh, the conventional reality and the words that accompany it. And uh, the practice that I understand we've been doing here is um, bringing balance between the conventional reality of me, my, my shawl, my seat, my emotion, and the ultimate reality, you know, that there is a shawl, <laughs> there is uh, an emotion. And, you know, it seems like in our culture we've tipped a lot in the side of, like, identifying a lot with everything as I. And hopefully here, this, uh, these last two months or month, we've been bringing some balance to it, to know that things pass by and they can't be really deeply owned. It's not possible to own a cushion, ultimately. And if you really do own it deeply in your mind, there's going to be a, a threat and you're going to uh, suffer at some point, you know. And this, so the bringing balance in this... Uh, and so that shows up also in speech. One can use speech, but have a deeper knowing of what is meant there, you know. Um, these last few days we were talking about uh, mudita. And uh, the mudita, the, the joy of, um, of um, rejoicing in the good fortune of others. Yeah. And the joy in the, uh, the joy in rejoicing in the good qualities uh, of others. Um, and John, jo- uh, John, Al- Joan Halifax, uh, she adds another color to this uh, her description of mudita that I like a lot is the the offering of joy, the conscious offering of joy. Uh, so when I practice mudita, I like to consider these three uh, forms, the success, the happiness of, uh, of people, how Nikki said it very well the other day. She said, you know, if you can feel mudita for the successes and joys of others, you gain access to an infinite pool or well of nourishment. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, just a little story that comes to mind when I talk about this is uh, a few years back, I was going to have the amazing chance to go uh, do a trip uh, to uh, Africa, to Burkina Faso and Mali. Um, and uh, I had my plane ticket, I had my uh, visa, I have my shots that uh, us Westerners need to uh, go visit uh, other countries sometimes. And I was ready to go. I was, I can't remember, just a few days before departure. And for me, uh, it meant a lot. I was going to spend my 40th birth- birthday maybe on the land of our ancestors. Or there's something mythical for me about uh, this trip. I was very excited. I couldn't believe my chance because my partner... Uh, was uh, working there and at the end of his uh, contract I could meet him and we would travel from uh, from uh, Ouagadougou to Timbuktu which was blowing my mind that I could do that but a few days just before departure uh, he got really sick and decided that he wanted to actually come back to the country uh, and so you know, of course, I had to be there and uh, let go of that uh, that uh, that thing. And I remember that night that I learned about it, I, I was uh, dis, uh, disheartened or despondent or whatever the word would be there. Like my spirit was low, you know. And I understood totally what was happening. But and I, it was the summer, and I just took my bike and went for a bike ride. You know, like kind of like okay, gotta let that one go. You know. And I was just. Uh, biking around in the city and I ran into um, the um, Western African uh, music festival <laughs> that was happening unknown to me, you know. And, uh, and so I just went there and I sat there and, uh, uh, you know, the music from Mali is amazing music and there were a band playing and there were uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people and a lot of Africans were there and Canadian Africans and, 
And a lot of people, and they were serving uh, food from uh, West Africa. And so I took my plate <laughs> and I sat there. And it was actually, uh, I had a lot of joy. I could, uh, I could gain access to the, the joy of people celebrating their culture there and, the, and, the, and the other people discovering this culture or celebrating it also, knowing it. And I, I, I remember how the mudita of this was... Uh, helped me really digest the, you know, the bad news that I was getting uh, uh, of the sickness of my partner, but also that particular tr trip that I was not going to do. So, a little mudita story. So, this first mudita of, uh, of um, uh, rejoicing in the, the joy of others, but that other one that I particularly like is this mudita. Sorry. the rejoicing and acknowledging the good qualities of others. And uh, I think the emotion is because um, I've been blessed the whole month by um, that kind of um, protection and joy. And um, there's many ways to talk about it, but... Um, uh, through hanging out with you, but a lot through uh, spending time with these very quality beings that are on uh, each uh, each side and uh, the rejoicing in their 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 um, their beautiful qualities and um, John's. Uh, has his heart on his sleeve, you see. He's really a, has a great spirit of service and humility that is deeply touching. And I always feel as a protection when I'm in the presence of somebody who has a beautiful quality and I can recognize it. I think it's really good practice for me to be very attentive and... Uh, take it in, the nourishment from that. And uh, Leela's um, vulnerability and uh, intelligence and quirkiness and uh, friendliness. She's, she's a, one archetype of a good friend. And, uh, and Winnie's uh, unique intelligence and dry sense of humor. Somebody says, M a little drier than this, she would be English. <laughs> <laughs> Through these insights and uh, playfulness, sometimes very much like a child, sometimes very girlish, I would want to say. Uh, I mean, this is just a few things that I, I want to mention. And Jack... Uh, Jack is, um, Jack really, when he talks about, you know, the, this image of the, the golden Buddha that is um, hiding, I think he really sees this in people, truly. And there's a sense with Jack that um, you can fall flat on your face. It's, it's, it would be just something to smile at. It's part of the, the path of awakening. And there's a... Uh, what I get from him is a sense of that he can uh, he really believes in the deep wisdom that we all have, and that's good to be around that and Tisha is not there, but um I hope it's okay for you that I do this it's uh it's a, something about speech here and mudita that I want to mix in together um Tija and our team uh, has been um, really the quiet um, allowing. It, it really, uh, to me, my feeling with him was really of, uh, he was having mudita. He was in the meetings, he, off, he seldom talks, but he's really very attentive and very open and really enjoying everybody's take on life and on things. And that's a particular qu quality that uh, is very awesome. So you see how these awesome qualities that are there and
uh, that you maybe get to experience also, but I've been bathing in that for a month, and it's really good. And Jaya and Nikki that I'm uh, getting to, to know, and with their, their, um, their flexibility and their, um, their uh, service and their interest and their... Um, um, both are very, um, very much in training. They're very attentive to what's going on there. They're very curious about what it is to teach the Dhamma, what it is to be in relationship with students, what the, the, all the, the aspects of it. And I, uh, it's a teaching for me to, uh, uh, you know, keep being attentive in this way. And so... Um, and uh, John Halifax talks about this um, this last part of uh, mudita or the joy that you offer to others and um, and uh, the idea that we had uh, together is that uh, Saturday uh, evening, and I want to bring in this, that also uh, the power of speech, huh? like I talked a little bit about like the ways that speech can break, you know, communities or break relationships or break one's self access to freedom, but speech is, um, is extremely powerful. It can liberate, it can protect, it can enhance, nourish, support uh, it can it's uh, in the text um, when you read the sutras uh, you we see so many times that people hearing the words of the buddha awaken completely clear their mind heart of uh, any delusion this is through speech or the voice of another leading to right wise view and it says in the teaching of dana that the, the most uh, profound gift, a form of giving, is the gift of Dharma. To actually give the gift of Dharma when it's wanted. Is <laughs> 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 the most profound gift that uh, one can give. So we thought that uh, Saturday evening, what we could do it's something maybe around this, and what we thought is that, and it's something that I've done a few times with other groups that uh, seems to work well, is that um, we would want to offer you the opportunity to write uh, a little poem, short poem. I'll talk about the form of haiku, which would be a form that you would be invited to use, to um, express your mudita, your joy, your insight, your uh, share a little moment of the retreat uh, with us. And the form that it would take, if it's okay with you, is that in the next two days you would be invited to drop your haiku in the bell here. And on Saturday evening, we would pass the bell around here, around the teacher, and every teacher would read maybe... I don't know what's the count, you know, 10, ten uh, of the little poems. Uh, and it could take a little bit of a different form, but um, uh, it would be an opportunity for you to offer a little something uh, that your voice be heard in the form of writing. And uh, why speech is often talked about also is why speech as the movement of the mouth, but also sometimes the movement of the fingers, you know, the written words. And so, um, the haiku is a, is a, a very s- a simple and powerful form of, uh, of poetry. I'm no expert at all in this, but I know a few things that I can give to you and that you can play with. You know, play with, not hard rules, but three lines. Uh, often they'll have seven syllable, five syllable, seven. If you add all this up, that makes something like... Uh, 575. Yeah. Oh, 575, yes. So it makes 17, yeah. But when the haiku uh, is written in English, often it'll have between 
let's say roughly 10 and 20 syllables. It's something to be said in one breath. That's how you can think about it. It's a poem that can be said in one breath. And um, uh, often uh, it will uh, have a little aspect of nature in there. You know, if you classic uh, haiku will, uh, in the spring will have something about uh, a cherry blossom. Summer haiku might have a mosquito passing by. Uh, fall haiku might have a leaf falling. And winter haiku, make a wild guess. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be. And sometimes the season uh, is hidden in there with one word that it's very subtle or not. But often it names a season. It's more, we say it's more of a kind of a snapshot, a moment than a description of what happened. It's just like a, a little sight of something very quick. Usually it's very, uh, what's the word in English? It's very, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very accessible. It's not, uh, uh, it's something about nature, very, very, uh, very easy to understand in a way and might be very deep. Often haikus has a, have a teaching about impermanence in them. And in your case, it doesn't have to be. Uh, you can play with this as you see fit. And you don't even have to. And uh, they will be read anonymously. So, And there's no mistake possible because it's a play. And it's a sharing and it's an offering. Um, and I thought I could read you a few uh, haikus just to inspire you maybe um, Isa right at my feet and when did you get here snail um I'll read you one that I wrote uh, last uh, spring. Uh, we were at um, in Joshua Tree in National Desert doing the DPP retreat there. And uh, we did that exercise. It was very inspiring. And uh, during the retreat, I had the chance to hang out a few times with um, the daughter of Diana Winston, one of the teachers who was there with her little uh, two-year-old daughter. So one afternoon, we... Uh, we were able to spend a few minutes at the pool together, and it was really fun. We were having a good time, all wet at the pool. And um, so this is my little haiku that I, I wrote then. And the haikus were, uh, at, at that time, were in exploration of mudita. So this is the haiku. Little hand puts in mine wet popcorn. Heart warms up and pops. Um, I ran into um, some uh, haikus from uh, Sonia Sanchez, who's a scholar and poet and artist. Um, and uh, she's writing a few uh, haikus about Max uh, Roach, who's a great percussion. Per per percussionist and uh, so here's a two uh, haiku uh, for him in honor of his work your hands humming hurricanes of beauty and another one uh, as you drummed your hands kept reaching for God and another one from her, also um, in celebration of uh, Maya Angelou, which I ha had the chance to see live at Glide Memorial a number of years ago. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> you have taught us to pray.
I mean, I have several ones, but you get the gist, no? So, I think what I, my kind of, um, sometimes before the talk, I'm revealing <laughs> my little, something personal here. Sometimes before the talk, and I think I'm not the only one, but I, I go in and so what? What do, would you like to pass on, Pascal? What is the essence of what you want to pass on? And tonight, I don't know if I did, but there was two things that were mm, dear to my heart. It was um, um, you d uh, wanted to invite you to um, bring the field of speech to, to engage with it as a land of practice, as a domain of practice, as a rich domain of practice that can, uh, you know, reveal your intentions, show you your intentions, or that by being aware of your intentions can inform your speech, how, you know, your mind states will make you speak, how your, you know, how it can definitely be practice, speech. And also how joy uh, uh, is essential on the path and nourishing and how it's important to learn how to nourish the soul uh, by touching joy in a di its different form and how speech also can, uh, can be an expression of, uh, of, uh, of joy, of uh, a gift. Yeah. So... Very humbly, and again, thank you so much for your for your for your practice and dedication. Thank you. So maybe we'll just sit for a moment in silence and. Night and the moon, my neighbor playing flute out of tune. <laughs> 